0: Hi, I'm Diane Hollett. Welcome to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. I'm here today with author and undertaker, Todd Hera. And Todd has written several books that we'll chat about because it's all really interesting. But the particular one we're talking about today is his newest book. And that newest book is called Last Rights. The evolution of the American funeral. You can find out more about Todd at ToddHara.com, And also you can follow him on Facebook at Todd Hera Author. So welcome, Todd.
1: Thanks for having me, Diane. It's great to be sitting down and chatting with you this afternoon.
0: We're going to have a great conversation. I think this new book is so, so interesting. So Todd is a fourth generation undertaker. In uh, with a family-owned funeral home in Delaware, Do you, what what more would you tell us about that?
1: So, my three greats grandfather was a uh, cabinet maker in uh, Milford. That's uh, the lower county in Delaware, and uh, by his vocation, making you know the furniture for the town, he was also the person that the townspeople called on uh, to make the coffin when somebody in town died. Uh, And that's how the family got into the business. And that was very common at the time. Um, They were actually called tradesmen undertakers because their trade led to, you know, them being the undertaker for the town. Uh, Carpenters, joiners, upholsters, you know, those were all common trades that would end up being the town's undertaker. Uh, One After the Civil War, his son Isaac took over the business and uh, kind of branched out into uh, embalming. Um, And there was a couple uh, breaks in the uh, family uh, because Isaac only had one daughter. And at that time, he said, you know, women can't go into funeral service, which to me is, uh, you know, ridiculous this day and age in that. I think every single graduating mortuary class now is well over 50% women, you know, women are uh, definitely going to be the bulk of the funeral practitioners, uh, certainly, um, you know, in the next few years, and definitely in the next generation. Uh, so it sure. kind of cracks me up that uh, that, that was time, the attitude. Yeah,
0: yeah, at that time, no way. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and so my my uncle picked back up the the Funeral mantle, so to speak, and uh, and I work for my uncle. Uh, it's a family business in in Delaware.
0: Well, you, we were just talking before we hit record about how um, this is your fifth book, actually. So tell tell about the others because you were telling me, and I think listeners would like to
1: know. So the first one in uh, 2010 it was called Mortuary Confidential. And uh, a friend of mine named Ken McKenzie, who has a mortuary in Long Beach, came to me with with all these stories he had collected from undertakers across the United States and, uh, you know, said, Todd, I have this idea for a book. I said, oh, my gosh, this is a fantastic idea. And, you know, the the book is kind of humanizing uh, the funeral service practitioner, um, you know, kind of looking at behind the scenes Uh, the day-to-day and kind of some of the, you know, the the triumphs and the sorrows and things we deal with, Um, and we followed that shortly with a book called Over Our Dead Bodies in 2014, and uh, after that, I had kind of said all I had to say um, as far as nonfiction with the uh, funeral profession, Uh, so I wrote two fiction books with, of course, a undertaker as a protagonist, and uh, and then I got this idea for for Last Rites and uh, started you know, rattling around in my head. And it wasn't until I read this book uh, by David Ashinsky called uh, Bellevue, Three Centuries of Medicine and Mayhem, that something clicked. And the only reason I picked up this book, you know, it's a book about a hospital. And the only reason I picked up this book is because we did our uh, clinical embalmings uh, at Bellevue for the mortuary school I went to was, was in Manhattan. And you know I was like, okay, well, I've been to Bellevue, this, this is kind of interesting, but how interesting can a book about a hospital be? And I read it and the way he kind of made, um, you know, the history of medicine kind of leap off the page, I was like, wow, nobody's ever done that for funeral service, I can do that. Uh, and in the same you know, breath, I'm thinking, wow, that's gonna be a lot of work. So, um, you know, the other books I had all written on spec, meaning I wrote the book and then, you know, tried to sell it. Uh, whereas this one just, it, it, I knew it would be too much work for me to write it on spec. And then if I wasn't able to sell it, um, you you know, that'd be a lot of wasted effort. So what I did was I wrote three chapters along with the book proposal, you know, with the thought that, okay, if I can get a publishing contract, it'll be worth it to write the rest. And, um, you know, I signed a contract for this book. Uh, it was almost exactly one week before everything shut down for the pandemic. Um, so,
0: wow.
1: uh, you know, I, I, had these grand plans to go to the national archives and yeah. there's a funeral service library out in Wisconsin at, uh, NFDA, that's the National Funeral Directors Association uh, headquarters. They have a funeral library uh, that was closed. So I had to get creative uh, doing research for this book to meet the, the deadline uh, to deliver the manuscript.
0: Wow. Well, I just, I thought it was such an interesting book because, I mean, just to read a couple of things from the table of contents, you know, chapter one is called A Seismic Shift. Lincoln and the new sanitary science. And, and well, I'll, I'll come back to that, but then chapter two, the book of the dead, chapter three, lethal combat and other Roman obsequies. How do you even say that? Obsequies. Obsequies. Um, The bloody barber surgeons embalming emerges from the dark ages. It just goes on and on. And, and I was really touched by, I mean, I was aware that embalming had really impacted the funeral industry because of Lincoln, right? And when Lincoln was assassinated and he was embalmed, prior to that, he had had his young son who died embalmed. And so suddenly embalming was on the forefront of the national mindset. But the way you brought it to life, I mean, there's these incredible details, like when uh, Lincoln's casket was brought through, I believe it was New Jersey's you know, some carpenters built on just a few days notice, 60 carpenters worked and built this incredible hearse that was pulled by 16 white horses, you know, and you describe the every stop in every town, the number of people and where the body went and how it looked and how these young embalmers kind of kept him looking fresh for this long trek all the way back to his hometown of Springfield, Illinois, I just thought it was such an astounding read because you really did what you said. You brought to life this national event that, that you go on to say was really the largest funeral viewed by millions of people, right? A million, million, I don't know, a lot millions. of millions.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, by my count, 880,000 people actually physically laid their eyes on Lincoln's remains uh, in the 19 days between his death and when he was buried. Uh, But there were millions and millions of people that lined the city streets to watch his grand hearses, or sometimes they were called catafalks, drive by. And uh, people that would just line the train tracks, as the, the train was called the Lincoln Special, as the Lincoln Special would drive through the country, there was people that would just be out in the middle of nowhere and they would build these giant bonfires just to catch a glimpse of, you know, this, this fallen martyr who had brought the union through, you know, four of its darkest years, uh, who had been killed in just a spectacular fashion, uh, you know, and that the nation was, was mourning and, you know, everyone wanted to feel like they were part of the event. Um, you, you know, what, what's, there's a saying, I think it goes, you know, grief shared is grief reduced and joy shared is joy, joy enhanced. Um, so, you know, people wanted to come together and really, uh, you know, show their respect for Lincoln, but also, you know, mourn as a nation.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, you described that that in the countryside, it was it was lit by fires and bonfires and torches. And these what would have been just dark passes of train tracks through the countryside were just lit. And at one point, there were so many flowers on the train track, the train almost couldn't move forward. I mean, just such incredible visuals. And you capture all that so beautifully. And you you start right in the very beginning saying, who knew that this tiny little piece of metal, And you describe the metal and I'm thinking, what metal is he talking about? You're describing the bullet that killed Lincoln. Mm -hmm. That tiny bit of metal would so change the funeral industry. So, I mean, so tell us about embalming because I, I mean, I know that was when it got on the forefront, but, but what is it? Why is it? How is it still important?
1: So Lincoln's funeral, I would say is definitely what moved the needle, in in our culture, in American culture, on embalming, um, you know, kind of just to very quickly jump back, you know, everyone thinks of embalming, they think of the Egyptians mummification. Um, they're a, a little bit separate. Um, mummification is different than embalming in that, you know, mummification the goal is to preserve the remains forever. Uh, That was part of their, you know, religious, um, you know, they needed the body to remain uh, so, you know, when the spirit came back, it could recognize itself. So the Egyptians were preserving, um, you know, in the thought of eternity, whereas embalming is more of a, you know, temporary preservation, um, you know, so you can view the remains, whereas after mummifications, the remains are not viewable in the sense that, you know, a modern American would expect. Um mummification kind of jumped into uh, medieval Europe. Uh, anatomists were working um, using embalming as um, really tissue preservation so they could study tissues for, for medicine. And that's kind of how it jumped into uh, America. There was a doctor who um, his name was uh, Richard Harlan. He was a Philadelphia doctor who translated a Frenchman's uh, embalming textbook, um, uh, Ganal, uh, Jean Nicolas Ganal's. Um, textbook and uh so embalming gained its toehold in america in about the 1840s okay remains virtually unknown for the next 20 years very few people are practicing it except some anatomists who are again using it as tissue preservation uh, so they can study it for medical purposes enter the civil war okay all of a sudden the only way to get a uh, slain soldier back to uh, their hometown for burial is to uh, have them either embalmed or placed in a Fisk uh, airtight metallic case. Now, Fisk cases, uh, they worked. Uh, You could put an unembalmed body in there and they were airtight, but think about it. It's wartime. The Fisk cases were very expensive to begin with, about four times the cost of a normal coffin, but wartime all the materials, the iron that was going to be used for a FISC was typically going into munitions production. So uh, they were a little bit harder to find. And because of their scarcity, the price was astronomical for them. So the uh, Adams Express, that was the uh, uh, rail company that uh, was up through the north, they would not um, ship decomposing remains. Um, You know, the passengers complained, the porters, uh, you know, Darn near mutinied. Uh, so, the only way they would allow remains on is if they were in one of these Fisk uh, metal sealers or if the remains were embalmed. So, all of a sudden, there was demand for embalming. And so, you see, the initial practitioners of embalming were all pretty much without exception medical men because these were the only uh, men, and, and I say men because it was men at this time. Yeah. Um, They were the ones that knew kind of this this very unknown science of uh, embalming. And and during the Civil War, you see kind of the transfer of uh, knowledge to um, lay people. You know, these medical men, they'd have their assistance. So uh, you see lay people learning embalming. And then after the Civil War, you see it kind of disseminating across the country from there. But you know, I guess Diane, to answer your question, you know, why is embalming still important today? Is um, you know, I would say it gives families time, time to come together, time to view the remains, and time to do the things. And I say the things, I mean the ceremonial things that are important to them. Um, you know, without embalming, somebody's going to begin to um, you know decompose. Uh, You know, immediately now, depending on the case, some faster, some slower. But if you've got family that's coming in and gathering, and everyone wants to see whoever it is that has passed, uh, you know, embalming will give families uh, that time to do so. And, you know, I hear people all the time talking about cremation and burial. um, And, you know, embalming is not mutually exclusive to burial. Uh, we have plenty of families that come in, and they'll want to, you know, have their loved one laid out, public viewing, maybe even a church service, and then, you know, instead of going to the cemetery, we go to the crematorium. So, you know, I think that's a popular misconception that, um, you you know, embalming is not just for families wishing for the traditional burial. Uh, It can really fit into just about any, um, you know, service, uh, I would say the only exception might be, uh, I, I do believe there's some natural organic uh, reduction uh, facilities out there that cannot, you know, process an embalmed body. Yes. So I I do believe it's, that's, it's, you know, one a, of the limitations. Chemical.
0: Yeah, it's a yeah. chemical that wouldn't necessarily fit with composting. But I think that's a really important um, piece. I think I, I've also heard, you know, it can be really important in terms of, um, creating someone being more intact after an accident or some type of death that has disfigured the person, and if it's important for people to see that person, embalming is certainly a way to slow it down.
1: Absolutely, yeah, um, you're right. Postmortem reconstruction, uh, you know, there's a lot that that we can do after, you know, an accident or even, you know, an illness uh, to try to you know, restore folks to, you know, some semblance of how people remembered them.
0: This is jumping back to the Civil War, but I was really struck later in the book, um, beyond the Civil War chapter, you talked, you talked about this gentleman named Brigadier General Montgomery C. Miggs, if I'm saying that all correct. And he got very interested in the unfound, unclaimed bodies of Civil War soldiers, right? And actually kind right. of made it his mission to go around and account for the missing soldiers and find bodies. And the Civil War seems like it really had an impact on that as well, because after that, the U.S. and I don't know what other countries do exactly, but the U.S. kind of created some policies about how to handle bodies that were um, killed in battle and how to bring them home or bury them in the place. and you have a very moving section also about the unknown soldier and how that came to be the tomb of the unknown soldier at um arlington cemetery in our country and in other countries as well just these these powerful um evocative moments in our history that have had such an impact on the funeral world i i was struck also by a, a later chapter you, it's called mourning the great war and you talk about how the details of World War I that changed the way people coped with death and dying. What would you say about that?
1: You know, in my research, um, you know, America has undergone, and this is what I call it, um, two phantom body crises, okay? Um, and sorry to jump back yet again to the Civil War, but you had 650,000 combatants march off and uh, there the estimates are that only 5 to 6% were involved that means returned home so that's roughly what 30,000 um, returned home out of 650,000 so you've got uh, you know roughly 620,000 families that you know their their son their brother their father marched off and they never saw them again you know so there was a lot of uh, complicated grief, uh, I think, associated after the Civil War, um, you know, with families that, you know, they just had loved ones disappear. And I think that's part of the reason that gave rise to the popularity of, um, you know, these overt signs of mourning, these grand shows of mourning that we see in the Victorian era, the Gilded Age. Um, and then, you know, World War I, you've got 106 um, combatants uh, go across into Europe and, um, you, you know, essentially just, I don't want to say disappear because they were accounted for, you know, the, the War Department um, had, you know, started putting protocols in place, um, you know, and, and the plan was to return these soldiers but once they got into World War One, you know, the US government was like, oh my gosh, this is we had forgotten how difficult this was. So right. all well, you those... like you
0: talk about the numbers and you said there's, you know, 143 dying in battle each day, and right. 168 dying from illness and accidents and other, you know. Things that occurred, and so you've got three hundred plus bodies a day on certain lines. How do you even begin to deal with that in mud and snow and across foreign lines? <laughs>
1: it, it, exactly, it, it was it was overwhelming. It was yeah. overwhelming, and and you know after the war, um, you know the, America and uh, the European countries created these fields of honor. Okay, but you know, then you've you have um, the American families that are saying, "Wait, you know, you promised us we could have our fallen back." Um, and, and add into this, Diane, that the Spanish flu is going on. So, you know, home and abroad, you've got family members that are just dropping from the flu, and you're quickly burying them. So, not only the soldiers, but you've got domestically people dying at an alarming rate that are essentially you're just quote unquote, disappearing out of necessity. So you don't get the entire town sick. So again, we've got another phantom body crisis with the soldiers and the folks sick from the flu that, you know, we've got another generation that just disappeared. And you see this shift and all of a sudden, you know, Americans rapidly um, shed all these uh, mourning customs from the Victorian period um, and, and part of that was a morale issue. You know, you've got somebody wearing all black for two years because they lost someone. Well, that suddenly isn't practical during World War One, when everyone was losing somebody. Um, and and you'd have all these women, you know, in town, you know, all wearing black. And then, of course, you know, the women were moving into the factories to take the jobs the men had. And how could they wear those complicated mourning costumes? I mean, they weren't dresses; they were. Right, multi-piece you know, gossips. yeah. Right, kind of um, these
0: complicated gowns that you are supposed to wear, and suddenly they can't do that. They're supposed exactly. to be helping out, yeah.
1: So you, you see kind of all of a sudden uh, morning shift yet again yeah, in, in America. Yeah, Ad-
0: adapting to the new times. And so that right. was when they began wearing armbands.
1: Armbands and morning jewelry, which was popular in the colonial period, made a resurgence. The morning ring and uh, the brooch became very popular in addition to the, uh, the armband.
0: So interesting. And then I love you also connect that in the book to sort of how there's been a resurgence of that in new ways like tattoos or glass pieces being made like we think of, in some ways we think of these new things we're doing with cremated remains as being new, but they're kind of not new they're kind of this resurgence of these um, World War One kind of era mourning rituals.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Cremation jewelry is very popular. Uh, you know, a necklace or a ring or something, you put a little token amount of cremated remains in. Well, I mean, that's a throwback to World War One, which is a throwback to a uh, colonial era. Um, you know, that was part of the, the culture. Giving out a mourning gift was expected. Um, you know, so all this stuff is, is very interconnected. And I think that's what fascinates me uh, about it so much is, um, you, you know, just kind of pulling on these little threads and, you know, finding out where they, they lead.
0: Yeah, it was so clear to me from your book that you're that you love history, you know, that you're a historian. And it wasn't enough to just sort of have, you know, two pages about Lincoln's thing. It's like pages and pages and details and numbers and descriptions. And I I for one loved it. I mean, I think if you know, if someone's a history buff, this is a great book to read and such interesting information. And, you know, at the very end, you say so clearly, you say one thing is certain. The quote-unquote traditional American funeral is not static. It's in a constant state of flux. No matter what happens 50, 100, or 200 years from now, two things remain certain. People will still die and still need a funeral, and the American funeral rite will continue to morph to meet the demands of the changing culture.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I hope it's clear, um, you know, to, to anyone reading this book, it, you know, um. It, you know, the funeral profession sometimes gets painted with a broad brush, you know, a couple bad actors um, as other professions do. I mean, you know, look at, look at police in America today um, getting painted with a bad brush through the actions of a few. Um, But I I hope it's clear to people that read this book is, you know, we're not here to sell you anything. And I say we as any funeral director, um, if, if you look back, you know, funerals have been around long before the profession. We're just here to facilitate, you know, kind of these age old rituals that, um, you know, people need uh, when a death occurs. So, um, y- y- you know, I-, I was really trying to uh, kind of demystify, um, you know, some of the, you know, kind of common things I hear about the profession that just simply aren't true.
0: I, I love that. I think you're right. I think it gets painted with a broad, bad brush. And, and, and honestly, sure, if somebody, dies at home of a complicated, long cancer, and they've made their wishes known, maybe you can pull a lot of it together as a family or friends. But there's a lot of deaths where you need the support of professionals, whatever that looks like, a combination of hospice and a combination of funeral directors or people who know the ins and outs of it. So I think that's a really really good point to say this is a profession that has long history, and it isn't all about upsell and be smarmy and, you know, these kind of... (laughs) you know, things you hold in your head about it. I think that's really true.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: Well, mm-hmm. I love that you've brought this kind of fresh approach. When, when when Todd and I got on this Zoom call, I was like, wait a minute, I thought you were going to be like a 60-year-old guy with like, you know, history buffs sort of <laughs> And instead, you know, I don't know how old you are, Todd, but you're young and um, clearly, you know, the fresh face of the funeral industry. So I thank you for joining me today. Boy, I feel like, you know, we should do this again in like six months and tackle like three other chapters because there's so much here. Your book is so dense and so interesting. And I hope a lot of people take a look at it. Again, the title of the book is Last Rites, The Evolution of the American Funeral. Great title, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. Sometimes titles really nail it. And I think you really, you nailed it. So thanks for your time.
1: Well, thanks for having me on.
0: Great. Again, you can find out more about Todd at toddhara.com, and you can find out more about the work I do at bestlifebestdeath.com. Thanks so much for listening.